to Life Talks with Stephen and Pat. So good to have you with us. Welcome to another Life Talk with your host, Stephen Marshall. And And Pat Marshall. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Proverbs 15 today. So this is exciting. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us, to teach us, to give us revelation. Pam, why don't you lead us in prayer? Father God, we thank you that you are always here. You always are listening and always wanting to unfold your way and your will to us. Lord, you never are quiet or silent, but you always desire to constantly, by Holy Spirit, unfold to declare, disclose, and transmit the will of the Father to us, Holy Spirit. So we thank you for, Holy Spirit, for breathing on this word, unfolding the way and the will of God so that our lives can always go forward and increase for the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Proverbs 15, starting at verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. (laughs) Oh, dear. There's been so many times in my life where, you know, I'm not really an angry person, but somebody just totally flaring up at me for no reason and being kind of arrogant with their facial expressions and being condescending and kind of angry for no reason at all. And, you know, your first reaction is like, what are you doing? You know, you want to kind of combat anger with anger, thinking that's going to push back, but it never does. And I'm always disappointed any time that I've done it. <laughs> well, you know, we read I'm, in the last <laughs> chapter about not foaming up quickly, not letting your passion rule you, but ruling your passions. And I think this is even good advice for within your marriage, within your family, dealing with your children, dealing with parents. Yeah. A soft answer turns away wrath. Sometimes when things happen to people and, you know, we may not even understand what they're going through and what they're dealing with. You know, and I've got great family members who've been in the vice of life, Mm -hmm. being squeezed for everything they're worth. And sometimes they just, they boil over. They get angry. They get upset. They're scared. Maybe they're frustrated. And in a moment like that, it's good to remember a soft answer turns away wrath. So there's a time to really employ a soft answer and use it for your benefit to turn away wrath. Maybe you're dealing with your children. Your children are just, they're getting a surge of hormones. Hormones, they're struggling with things. Maybe they're scared about something at school, peer pressure, the future, everything that you know a young person is dealing with. As a parent, as a mentor, maybe you're a youth pastor, a leader, a soft answer turns away wrath. But yeah. it says here, grievous words. That's why, you know, we're not to employ grievous words. When would we want to use grievous words, Pam? No, but it, sometimes we think, you know, using the same techniques that someone's using on us, that'll push back. But you can't fight anger with anger, usually. Just you know, like the word says, don't return evil for evil. Right, right. I mean, there's a time to be strong and say, no, the line is here. I'm not saying that. But to be in control so it's not like out of control. I think kids feel really insecure. I was talking for my, you know, girl talk little uh, radio show that I have. We were talking to a lady that has been a teacher for 25 years, and she counsels parents on how to talk to their kids. And she says, don't react like they do. Take a deep breath. Always remain calm, even when they're being, the kids are being out of control. Number two, the tongue of the wise utters knowledge rightly, but the mouth of the self-confident fool pours out folly. Isn't it fascinating that the book of Proverbs is well known by most to be a book of wisdom, God's Mm -hmm. wisdom. And at the same time, these chapters put such a heavy emphasis on the words coming out of our mouth, Mm -hmm. our tone. Isn't that something? Yeah. The tongue of the wise utters knowledge rightly. You know, you can utter knowledge wrongly. I've seen people do that. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were famous for that. They had knowledge of the first five books of the Old Testament. They had knowledge of Moses' writings, but they would utter it wrongly. 
They right, they would use tone. it as a, a bludgeon. Jesus said they would use it as like a big old stick to kind of like whoop the people and kind of put them in their place, and they would be legalistic with it. And Jesus even said, you guys, you heap up a burden on the people that you yourselves are unwilling to bear. Right. They would use knowledge wrongly. The word says here, the tongue of the wise utters knowledge rightly, but mm. the mouth of self-confident fools pours out folly. I do not want to be a fool. No. And you know, it's very important. We've talked about this so many times, but it's very important to say the right words in the right time with the right tone in the right place. Right. I remember telling you that one time I, I saw a pastor tell his wife he loved her and it was the most abusive thing. I mean, he said it with such an offhanded, almost disdainful shade toward her. Yeah. Okay. I love you. I'm too busy reading my paper to even look at you. That's how very unimportant you are to me. Right. So right. here's your little bone. Yeah. Little puppy run off in the corner and right. gnaw Don't away on me. this. Yeah. She had such a hurt look on her face. It was such an offhanded remark. You can say the right thing. But if you don't say it the right way with the right tone mm, and the right mm-hmm. heart behind it, you're not uttering knowledge rightly. That's Verse right. three, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch upon the evil and the good. God sees it all. <laughs> yes, he does. There's nothing hidden from the eyes of God. Yes, he perfectly discerns between what is good and what is evil. Number four, a gentle tongue with its healing power is a tree of life, but willful contrariness in it breaks down the spirit. This goes right along with one and two. Yeah, absolutely. You know, know? Pam, there's members in my family right now that are believing God for a divine healing in their life. Oh, I know. And I find even when I'm long distance away from them, I always pray with them. But you know, when I'm talking to them on the phone, I find the Holy Spirit leading me to be of a gentle attitude and tongue. Yeah. And somehow I can sense that healing virtue is going out through Mm -hmm. those words and through that gentleness. And it says here that a gentle tongue has healing power and it's a tree of life. You know, friends, you may feel sometimes it can be intimidating when a friend or a loved one is in the hospital and you may even feel afraid to go visit them thinking, well, like, what can I do? And it's just circumstances are so difficult. Arm yourself with this. I'm going to go in with a gentle tongue. Oh, that'll work. And according to God's word, it will have healing power and it will be a tree of life. Yes. Right. Go in asking the Holy Spirit to help you. Maybe somebody you know, they're many miles away and you're not even sure what to say to them. Arm yourself with this word that I will have a gentle tongue. Right. And it will be a tree of life displaying healing power. That's really good. That's really good. On the other side of that, But willful contrariness in your tongue breaks down the spirit. In other words, don't be a conduit of contrariness. It's been very hurtful sometimes to go in trying to help people and this arrogant look and contrariness in their face. Like, what are you bugging me for? And, you know, you're trying to help in a situation and it's almost like willful contrariness. Like, I don't really care. I know it all. Don't. And it kind of hurts. And and even when someone does that to you, don't act like them and lower yourself to being a hater or returning evil for evil. Always be gentle with your Philippians with 4 your verse 5. Let your gentleness be made known unto all men yeah. for the Lord is at hand. Yeah. Look at even Jesus going to the cross when it came to his will, submitted his will to the fathers. He mm-hmm. said, not my will, but Father, your yeah. will be done. You can tell when somebody's afraid. I've had good people in my life that get tormented by fear, the fear of failure, the fear of a 
some impending doom on them. Maybe it's even at work, the fear of losing their position or not being accepted. And when they get in that mode, when they get fearful, the tendency is to become willful to become defiant and dig your heels in. Right, that's so common. But measure yourself like that. When you get fearful, that means it's the opposite of faithful. And realize that when you get in fear, you're prone to become... Contrary? Yeah, you're prone to become contrary. Mm -hmm. So allow the Holy Spirit to help you to examine yourself and bring that wickedness to the cross. Just say, God, I repent of being willful. All of us would struggle with this. This is the nature of sin. And bring it to the foot of the cross and just receive, Father, I want your will. Your will be done in my life. I surrender to it and just allow that faithfulness to begin filling up your heart again. And as you get faithful, you'll find yourself becoming less fearful and peace will guard your heart and mind. That is so good, honey. That really is good. I think we all need to ponder that thought really and let God unfold that even throughout this day because, you know, there's been times in my life where People have deliberately put me down or tried to humiliate me, and I started feeling like I was nothing. I just wanted to curl up in the corner like I'm just not good enough, I'm not whatever enough. And all of a sudden, this boldness came on me, and I put my shoulders back and my head up. No, God, and you, I am this and I am that. And that's a confidence in the Lord. That's a trust in the Lord. That's a a decision, a willful decision to trust in the Lord that I am valuable in Him. I am precious in Him. Nobody can destroy me. That's okay, but when we cross over... And an arrogance, like, let me tell you a thing or two. That's wrong. We always have to be kind and gentle, even with our shoulders back and our head up, a soft answer, not like, well, let me tell you a thing or two. You're not going to put me down anymore. You don't have to do that. If we're confident in the Lord, in who we are in Christ, we can put our shoulders back and our head up with a confidence, but not with willful contrariness, arrogance, and pride, like, let me tell you a thing or two. We don't have to prove anything. We don't have to be arrogant or push back. We just confidently know a quiet assurance, this is who I am in the Lord, and I know it. Yeah, we don't have to be right because in Christ, we are the righteousness of God. Right. That's oh. the ultimate rightness, right? Yeah, so that's so true. You know, to be able to defer, to be able to yield, to mm-hmm. be able to surrender, to not have the need to be right. Right. And you may absolutely be right, but to be submitting to one another, it's a wonderful thing because you want to be able to hold your peace. And peace is essential in challenging times. Verse 5, a fool despises his father's instruction and correction. We've been reading a lot about, well, don't do this with a fool. Don't go with a fool. Don't walk with a fool. Proverbs 13 says that. Go with a wise man, but don't go with a fool. And at a certain point, it's like, well, how do we really know How do we discern who a fool is? Well, you know, the prodigal son, when he left home, he really was a fool. It says here, a fool despises his father's instruction and correction. This son wanted nothing to do with his father. He just wanted his money. He wanted nothing to do with his relationship. He didn't want his dad's words in his life. When you don't want somebody's words in your life, you basically leave the premise, right? Like the son left the country. I'm out of here, dad. That's how much he didn't want his father's instruction. He just was like, I'm getting out of Dodge. Right. But it says, but he who regards reproof acquires prudence, which as you've said many times, is having foresight for the future. So if you want to know the future, it says here, you regard reproof because you acquire vision for the future. That's good. Verse 6, In the house of the uncompromisingly righteous is great priceless treasure, but with the income of the wicked 
is trouble and vexation. That was very convicting for me as a boy because in my house, I didn't see a whole lot of great priceless treasure. And so it made me think, I need to discover and learn more about this uncompromisingly righteous. Because good things happen for this person. It says, in the house of the uncompromisingly righteous. And that's when I started learning that in Christ, we are made the righteousness of God. Yes, yes. So you become a student of righteousness when you realize in the house of the uncompromisingly righteous is great and priceless treasure. Verse 7, the lips of the wise disperse knowledge. Sifting it out as chaff from the grain. I love that, Pam, because the words of the wise, they know how to take factual evidence and sift it, separating the chaff from the grain. Chaff isn't necessarily a bad thing. Chaff is designed to protect the grain until the day when you want to access the grain. So you have to be able to separate the grain from the chaff. A wise person knows how to disperse the knowledge, knows how to disperse good stuff, sifting it as chaff from the grain. Not so the minds and the hearts of self-confident and the foolish. The self-confident and the foolish, they don't know how to separate the grain from the chaff. You know, I've heard people say, well, I'm only telling the truth. Have you ever heard people kind of, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's how they set up the context? Well, I'm just telling the truth. I'm just calling it the way I see it. And this is the way I am. I just, this is the way I you am. Know? I just say things like I, I just tell the truth. And you know, they're basically relying on the facts, but there's no gentleness. There's no sense of prudence. There's no sense of discretion. Right. People, even in a marriage, one spouse say about the other one, well, I'm just going to tell it the way it is. She's this or he's this. And it's like, oh, whoa, there's no sense of discretion or prudence in that. You're just being, you're being cruel mean-spirited. You say you're speaking the truth, but you're actually just trying to backhand the other person. Yeah, I saw, I think I've mentioned this, but I saw a lady in the store the other day wearing this t-shirt and it says, if sarcasm is wrong, I don't want to be right. This is who I, this is who I am, or something like that. Right, that's painfully. And I thought, how sad. But actually, I've heard Christians almost take on that as their identity. Yeah, everybody says that I'm sarcastic, and I guess that's just who I am, and and almost like wear it as a little identity tag on their shirt. You know, right. it's how sad. You show me when Jesus was sarcastic. He wasn't sarcastic with people. Jesus always was straightforward and said things sometimes very strongly, but always in the tone that he should have said it in that situation. I remember one time, I'd never seen this before, but recently we were reading where Jesus, when he was brought before Pilate and um, they had chained him up, he's getting ready to go to the cross. And when he first went in there and they had him handcuffed and everything and Pilate was asking him questions, one of the guards slapped him really hard across the face. And Jesus turned to him and said, why did you unlawfully hit me? Now he was getting ready to allow them to take him to the cross and mutilate him. But at that moment, he He was like, he said, look, I know that you're doing wrong right now. You're illegal, actually. But he wasn't even sarcastic in that moment. He was just straightforward. It goes to show you just how totally in control and in the know Jesus was of even his own suffering for us. All right, verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination, hateful and exceedingly offensive to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. So we got quite a range of offering in this, the sacrifice of the wicked. So people who have wrong motives, dark motives, controlling motives, a Jezebel spirit, they're coming with their gift. They may even be coming to a church with a big, here's my $100,000 offering, but in their heart, they have wrong motives. It's all about them. There's no humility. It's out of pride. It's maybe, look at me. And the Bible says, we just read that God's eyes are on the wicked and the just. 
and it says the sacrifice of the wicked. It's an abomination. There's a Bible verse that says, men look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God sees the heart there. Just like the widow with two mites, there was all these wealthy people casting in a lot of money. But when Jesus saw the widow putting in her two mites, it was like all of heaven just get into a big, exciting... Yay, look at that. Right? They were like, wow, look at this woman has cast in all that she has she's put into the offering. And it was like that really stirred heaven because God weighs things not the way men do. You know, and I think I'm getting more and more every time that there's a public prayer meeting or a public thing, you could see maybe somebody being there or you could even be there. But if behind the scenes, our lips are wicked towards people, we're condescending, we're arrogant, we're not kind, we're not patient, we easily get angered and put our anger on other people and try to put somebody down, as much as we appear to sacrifice sacrifice our time to be there every time there's a prayer meeting anywhere, and we're not willing to do things God's way, live kindly, that's not good. God doesn't like that. And he almost like says, it's offensive to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Well, notice what it so doesn't prayer say. That's, notice what it doesn't say. Sometimes you can just think that prayer is always a good thing, but it doesn't say the prayer of the wicked is his delight. Right. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that the prayer of the proud is his delight. Mm, that's good. Right? Yeah. The prayer of the upright is his delight, is God's delight. Yep. Well, Jesus gave us a picture of that when he talked about two people being in the temple praying. One was a Pharisee and a, you know, a religious leader, and he was basically praying and saying, wow, I'm really thankful that I'm not like that guy over there. Right. You know, a tax right. collector or a publican. Then the narrative shifts to the other guy's got his face to the ground and whispering, God, be merciful to me, right. a sinner. Uh-huh. And Jesus said, that man went down to his house justified, whereas the religious leader went home still steeped in his own arrogance, pride, and sin. When it says the prayer of the upright is his delight, taking what Jesus told us makes me think that the prayer of the upright is a prayer of humility. Yes. is from a heart yeah. of humility. We are the righteousness, the rightness of God in Christ Jesus we are supposed to be. So there is his rightness. Right. So know? it's not necessarily an uprightness in ourselves and our own doing, but a surrendered heart to God and a faith in God's goodness and uprightness. Yes. Right? Yeah, exactly. Verse 9, the way of the wicked is an abomination, extremely disgusting and shamefully vile to the Lord. But he loves him who pursues righteousness, moral and spiritual rectitude in every area and relation. Wow. I think that pretty much says it. The way of the wicked is an abomination, extremely disgusting and shamefully vile to the Lord. Mm. And there's no way around it. That's quite a picture, isn't it? An abomination, extremely disgusting and shamefully vile to the Lord. It doesn't say that that person is. It says that their way is the way of the wicked. God hates it. God really loathes sin, doesn't he? Yeah. When my way has been wicked, when I've chosen wicked ways, God looks at it and he's like, Stephen, that's just disgusting. I kind of imagine having a beautiful little son or daughter, and then they're out playing in just filth, like something that you know is the ultimate of whatever you would consider disgusting, toxic, putrid, vile. As a parent, you so love your little child, but there they are in all kinds of disgusting stuff, right? And I mean, you curl up your nose, not at the child, but it's almost like the combination of somebody that you so love love. Oh, I so love my little Billy. Yeah. (laughs) You so love your little Billy, but totally submerged in all that garbage. Right. It almost makes the garbage even more disgusting because the precious one that you love is in it. It's not like God going, oh, you disgust me, Mr. Wicked Person. No, no. It's that God is disgusted with wickedness Mm -hmm. because God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that while we were all in that wickedness, in that sewage, God sent his only begotten son to pull us out of that. Yeah. Isn't it Psalm 40 that says, he's lifted me out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock. The revelation of Christ Jesus. The way of the wicked is an abomination, extremely disgusting and shamefully vile to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness, moral and spiritual rectitude in every area and relation. Number 10, there is severe discipline for him who forsakes God's way, and he who hates reproof will die physically, morally, and spiritually. I think it's very important to read that. How a lot of people will read it is, okay, God is going to punish us because we're forsaking his way. It's a law of reciprocity. It's a law of gravity. When you walk in God's way, there's blessings. When you choose to walk in Satan's way, he's the author of death and confusion and lies and deceit and everything painful. So when you choose to walk down that road, you're automatically going to reap that. God doesn't want that for you. He's not trying to punish you. But we have a choice to come into the house when it's 50 below zero. Nice, warm house, sit by the fireplace, curl up with a blankie, get a cup of coffee. Or we can stay outside the house in 50 below zero weather and freeze. Now, the house is ours. The door's open. We can walk in anytime we want to. But what we choose, we will actually reap the consequences of our own spiritual decision to accept or hate God's way. Oh, absolutely. God gives us the path of life to walk on. But if we refuse to walk on the path of life, it's not like God's standing there ready to backhand us. Our choices right. backhand right. us. Right. They, you, you know they what I mean? promote like, us or they backhand us. Yeah. We get to, in this country, we drive on the right side of the road. We get to drive on the right side of the road. Mm-hmm. Now, if you choose, to be law-abiding and driving the right side of the road, it goes well with you. It goes smooth. You go with the flow of traffic. But the moment in your mind you become willful and go, you know what? Today I choose to drive on the left side of the road. It's not the law that hurts you. It's your choice to go against the law that hurts you. And you not only hurt yourself, but you potentially hurt other people. Yes. Right? We were designed to be on God's way. Yeah. We're made in the image of God, Pam. We're his sons and daughters destined to be and live like God, walk like God. So the moment we begin to refuse to and become willful and not submitted to our Creator, not walk in the way of God, Mm -hmm. and go contrary to our design, well, of course, things get crazy when you use your lawnmower to cut your hair. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It wasn't designed to cut your hair. Right. You know, when we use things inappropriately, there's always abuse, and then there ends up being damage. Right. So this is what it's saying, and that's the way I look at that. I read that as getting off God's path, we end up experiencing the consequences of sin. Yes. Verse 11, Shoal, the place of the dead, and Abaddon, the abyss, the final place of the accuser Satan, are both before the Lord. How much more than the hearts of the children of men. So if God would know about, and it would be on his radar and on his books, the place of the dead, and Abaddon, the place that was made for Satan, not made for mankind, made for Satan, if that stuff is before God, how much more then are we before the eyes of God, recognizing that we are made in His image? The psalmist wrote in Psalm 17, verse 8, I believe, God, keep me as the apple, or that's the center of your eye. He went on and said, hide me in the shadow of your wings. It's safe to say that you matter to God. Oh, yeah. To an extreme degree, we all matter to Him. His six-day creation 
making man in his image, sons and daughters, even those that are lost. God's eyes are on us. We just read, he sees the wicked and the righteous. Why? Because God's heart is drawing those who are in wickedness out. I know about that because I was in wickedness and rebellion and God redeemed me. He bought me from slavery. He pulled me out. He set me free. Thank God for that. Yeah, amen. (laughs) Me too. 12. A scorner has no love for one who rebukes him. Neither will he go to the wise for counsel. You know, I think this is a really good description of what scorning is. And so it's just one side. There's a lot of different ways to scorn. You can even scorn with the expression in your face, your demeanor, your tone, your words, so many ways to scorn. But I think it's important to kind of make this a gauge for if you're a scorner. You know, I don't like it when somebody kind of rebukes me or makes me, you know, kind of, how dare you say that? You know, but then you just take a deep breath and go, wait a second, is there any wisdom in this at all? Has this person earned the right to speak into my life for one thing? And what kind of wise person are they? And if they are, then I'm thinking, I don't like it. And maybe is there anything in this that I could take as wisdom, apply it to my life and go forward? You know, I remember in Nashville when we lived there just for a few weeks, there's just been some disappointments and things. And I just got to be kind of a grumbler, <laughs> you know, for a couple of weeks. And you, you? were... I was a grumbler just for a couple of weeks. Such and a I, cute grumbler. And I though. was, I was just kind of everything was negative, and and this had gone on for a couple of weeks. And and you sat me down and you said, "Honey, I've been praying about this for two weeks. You've kind of been like this, and you described just kind of grumbling and." Scorn. I don't think you ever really became a scorner. Though, no, honey. no, but I was a little negative, Nelly, a little bit for two weeks. It wasn't scorner, but I guess the negative point, Nelly, I negative, like that. a little negative Nelly, because I was just sad about some things and stuff, and so you sat me down and you said, honey, who you are is so beautiful. And you always are just such a faith-filled woman of God. And you know, you've got a decision now. If you keep on going down this road, you're going to cease kind of being who God made you to be. You probably and, would eventually become a scorner right. if you kept going unchecked. Yeah. I wasn't given over to being a scorner at that time yet, but I'm talking about the point where the second part of the verse where it says, you won't go to the wise for counsel. So at first I was like, uh-uh, you know, I'm just hurting because then all of a sudden I started crying and I said, I'm so embarrassed. I was a negative Nelly. And then I repented. And, you know, I quickly accepted that and started thanking God out loud for things. And there was such joy came in my heart because if I would have kept on going, refusing a gentle rebuke with love, such love you did it within, if I'd not been willing to receive your wise counsel, I could have turned into a scorner. You know, Pam, as you're talking about that, I felt like the Holy Spirit downloaded this thought into my heart. As a parent or as a mentor, as a teacher, maybe a pastor, it's important when you have people people that you're responsible for, that you're able to, in a loving way, rebuke them when they're wrong. And parents, you know about this. You want to be able to have your rebuke, have weight with your children so that they heed what you're saying and they're set on right because you would never rebuke a child, but that you want them to have life, to be prosperous, to be blessed. If they're doing something that's dangerous, if they're even misusing the car and you want to be able to rebuke them, you want it to have weight. Well, listen, it says a scorner has no love for one who rebukes him. And it's very important for you, first and foremost, as a mentor, as a leader, a teacher, a parent, to model the opposite 
opposite of scorning. Because as a parent, if you're modeling scorning at home, your children will become scorners. And then look at what happens. You lose the ability to rebuke them because a scorner has no love for one who rebukes him. So parent, if you're watching TV and scorning politicians or the news comes on and you're scorning local officials or you're scorning this person and that person and scorning the government, you're doing that kind of thing. Your children will, as a sponge, soak it up. They'll get that scorning on the inside of them. They're getting it from dad and mom. And then the next thing you know, you'll go to put them on the right path. This will kick into gear. They will have no love for the one who rebukes them. Mm, So so beware that you never, and we've talked about this before, never mock, never scorn. You will lose the weight of your ability to correct the people that you're responsible for. Verse 13, a glad heart makes a cheerful countenance. Yay. Every day we pray and seek the Lord to crown us, not with just honor and glory, but with his gladness and with his joy. Everlasting joy shall be upon our heads. Isn't that what Isaiah says? A glad heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is broken. Mm -hmm. Thank God that the Lord is our source of gladness, our source of joy. Yes. We read in Psalm 16, verse 11, that in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So my friend, if you feel like when you look in your mirror, you're not seeing a cheerful countenance, don't look to your job or your career or other people to make your heart glad. Go to God because in his presence is fullness of joy. And he promised us in Isaiah 61 that everlasting joy would be upon our head and we could put on the garment of praise and there would be an oil of joy. Come on, yeah. We could obtain joy and gladness. So don't wait for the world to make you glad. Go to Jesus, go to the Lord and let him put the oil of joy on your head. You know, we just produce some fun, anointed songs that help you get joy in God's presence. And you know, the amazing benefits at his right hand. So do something for your heart and go download There's Joy, Come Together. Um, You even can get a song, I Bow Down, and many more great songs from Lifetime Worship. It's on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, and all the platforms. We got some joy-filled songs. Really do. There's so many songs on the worship collection talking about joy, but one of them in particular is You Crown Me With Joy. And I just sing it in the middle of the night sometimes. And I think that you have to command yourself to bow before the Lord and allow Him to crown us with joy. You're right. You know, speak to our body. I speak to my mind, will, emotions, and body. Sometimes in the middle of the night, three and four times. Body, receive the joy of the Lord. Mind, receive the the joy of the Lord right now. He spoke to his soul and he commanded his soul to bless the Lord. We got to do that because when we bless the Lord, then we engage the very presence of God. And we know in the presence of the Lord there is fullness of joy. Full, I like to say in the presence of the Lord, there is 100% joy. Yeah. You know? So if Stephen isn't experiencing joy right now, or it's not like you said, 100%, then that tells me I got to get deeper into the presence of God. Right. And I got to receive it. Sometimes this might sound kind of funny, but when we first got married, I don't know if you guys know what a rutabaker is, but I decided to... Us Canadians call it turnips. Turnip. Okay. Well, it's kind of like that big round thing and it's got kind of like a waxy thing on the outside. It's really hard to cut into. Well, I thought Stephen's grandma made rutabaga and he really liked it. So he was up in the studio. This is when we first got married. And I was downstairs deciding I was going to make some rutabaga. Not even sure I'm saying it right, but I couldn't cut into it because it was just hard as a rock. So I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll just boil it for a while and it'd get soft. Well, I kept checking it. 45 minutes later, it had been <laughs> boiling. It wasn't softer at all. And I was like, finally, I came upstairs and said, it's been an hour this thing has been boiling and 
nothing's happening. And he started laughing, saying, honey, you got to cut the thing on the outside. That, All that wax The waxy the kind of thing. I didn't even know it was wax, but it was a hard, almost like a shell thing on it, just a skin. But and it then was you wax. really need to like slice it up nice and thin right. so that you can actually cook it. And I think that it made me realize that, you know, once you did that, it cooked up so nicely. But sometimes I guess what I'm trying to say, there's a shell around us. The presence of the Lord is there ready to warm us up like the water was to the rutabaga. But there's a shell that bounces off his joy, whether it's just an unwillingness to submit to him, a grief that has to be given to the Lord, a sorrow, an attitude, an attitude, an offense, an arrogance, whatever. And it's like his joy's there. His joy's there. It's bouncing off that layer, that skin around us is bouncing off the goodness of God. And you got to submit to, Lord, cut away that outer thing that's bouncing off your joy, whatever it is. The Holy Spirit is so good at that, at searching our heart. And like you said, seeing if there's any of that waxy buildup, that that thick worldly skin that kind of somehow gets on there and it needs to be cut away. But the Holy Spirit is an expert at helping us with that. That's so good. He's a helper. Yeah, he sure is. Comforter. I love him. 14. The mind of him who has understanding seeks knowledge and inquires after and craves it. But the mouth of the self-confident fool feeds on folly. For me, you know, I think if you really crave knowledge, you pursue wise counsel. And that means going after good people, good mentors. It also means pursuing really good books and information. Besides, obviously, we want to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we go to the word of God. But, you know, there are authors out there that are godly women and men that we can get their books. Mm -hmm. They've invested a lot of hard work into writing those books. We can get those books and download the wisdom and pursue it. Pursuit is proof of desire. It's one thing for people to say, well, you know, I really, Stephen, I really desire knowledge. I'm all about getting understanding and Then let me ask you this. What books have you read recently? You know, in America, they say, statistically, there is such a small percentage of the population that even buys books or download books. And there's even a smaller fraction of that segment of society that even bothers to read or listen to their purchased book. Be a finisher in life. First of all, pursue understanding, pursue knowledge, get the book, but then read it from front to back. Don't just start a book, but start it and finish it. Proof of desire is pursuit. And so, So if you really, truly desire something, you pursue it. That means you pay the price of it. You know, we've been reading through the book of Proverbs, and it says those that really want wisdom and understanding, they pay attention. The ultimate payment is your attention. It's one thing to buy the book, but it's another thing to pay enough attention to read it all the way through. The mouth of the self-confident fool, he feeds on folly. So, you know, there's lots of folly to feed on. There's lots of TV shows and foolish podcasts that are just about nothing, not about anything eternal that you can feed on. My friend, you're listening to this. That means you're feeding on the wisdom of God because we're all indulging in God's wisdom together. We're going into the eternal consequences of meditating on God's word. And Joshua 1, says that if we would hearken to God's word in the morning and at night, we, I'm pointing at Pam and me and you, we make our way successful and we make our way prosperous. Isn't that cool? Amen. Verse 15, all the days of the desponding and afflicted are made evil. Let me say that again. All the days of the desponding and afflicted are made evil. How? By anxious thoughts and forebodings. Wow. First Peter says for us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and cast all of our care upon that him. That he may exalt us. Yeah, because yeah. he cares for us. You know, I'd so, like to, can I just interject here? Mm-hmm. I know it's your verse, but like if Is you, this my verse? <laughs> if you turn it backwards, 
I like sometimes to switch the scriptures around for understanding. By anxious thoughts and foreboding are your days made despondent and afflicted and made evil. In other words, when you start walking in consistent anxiousness, foreboding, fear, it sets you up for becoming despondent and afflicted. I like how you say foreboding. It's foreboding. It's got like that southern. <laughs> foreboding. Yeah, down there, For, foreboding. Foreboding. Boarding. Foreboding. <laughs> but it sets you up for being despondent and afflicted and walking in evil because you get broken down. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So when you have no strength, you just start giving up. You start giving way to evil, giving way to wrong thinking. You become despondent and afflicted. You know, anybody that's had depression, we known people that we love so dearly. So painful. It's so painful, you know. When you were a teenager, there was one time, remember, that you just got really discouraged because of the situation with your dad? Yeah, it was partly because of our family crisis with my dad, physical challenges, and my own wrong decisions. It all morphed into an ugly symphony of chaos producing depression, anxiety, hopelessness, and full-on panic attacks. Sometimes the emotional affects the physical and the physical affects the emotional. It becomes like a cat chasing its tail. I didn't even know it as a boy, but I had an extremely low thyroid. And so, you know, a low thyroid affects so many other things right. and affects even your your mental condition and your mental outlook. But look at the other half of this verse. Yeah. Pam. It says, but, 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 but he who has a glad heart has a continual feast regardless, regardless of, of circumstances. circumstances. So, you know, for me, I think that's so exciting because the thing is, it's God's will. It's important to know what is foundationally God's will for your life. It is God's will for you to be blessed, happy, glad. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what Isaiah 61 says, talking about the Spirit of the Lord being upon Jesus, and therefore we share in His anointing for removing the burden of grief and sorrow. Matthew chapter 5 records the Beatitudes where we have Jesus saying in verse 4, blessed are they who mourn. Just imagine that. It actually says in the Amplified, blessed with enviable happiness are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's God's will for you and me to be comforted by the Holy Spirit. Yes. And Jesus said that would be so profitable to our lives and that he would give us everlasting joy. That's what Isaiah 61 talks about. Isaiah 35 talks about an everlasting joy and the oil of joy coming down upon our head over our bodies. I believe like protecting our spiritual being and that spiritual hydration of our souls. So there's always a moistening, always a joy. And it says here, regardless of the circumstances. I like that so much. Man, isn't that exciting? Yay, it sure is. Now, verse 16, better is little with the reverent, worshipful fear and awe of the Lord than great and rich treasure and trouble with it. I think if we read this, it's very easy to go to extremes. Okay, then therefore I don't want to be rich because there's trouble with it. No, no, no. It's like the scripture that says prosperity ruins a fool. It doesn't ruin a wise person. A wise person can um, have authority over that and bless himself, his family, people around him, bring the gospel to the world. But it's saying better is little, even if you don't have a whole bunch, but you're in awe. You live a life of reverential worship and awe and fear of the Lord than those who have rich treasures, but they don't even know how to walk in that at all. Pam, here's how I read this. I've seen this in living action. We've got a dear friend of ours. When she was without Jesus, she had very little, next to nothing, could barely even take care of her and her kids. But when she came into the reverent, worshipful fear of the Lord, 
She had a very, very little, but that little became subject to God's direction, like in Proverbs 4. And she began to reverence God even with her substance. And now she's a multimillionaire, very blessed. Her children are very blessed. But then I've also seen those with great treasures but they've got trouble with it. They started out with great treasures, but they didn't have a reverence for God. Right. And their right. treasures are being taxed to the maximum. Their relationships have all kinds of problems. They need a, a glass of scotch to go to bed. Exactly. And just to overcome the fears. They've got great trouble. Who wants great treasure with trouble? Yeah. I, I want, I would rather have that little in the worshipful fear of the Lord because that little has a tendency to grow to, to much and much. Increase. It grows toward yeah. wealth, right? Verse 17, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted ox and hatred with it. And I feel like that just again builds on the foundation of what we've just been taught in verse 16. 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, or a hot-tempered woman, (laughs) a hot-tempered person stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger appeases contention. That really builds, doesn't it, on the foundation of we read in the last chapter, don't be driven and led by your passions. Mm -hmm. You know, passion can be good, like we talked about, even anger. The word says, be angry and sin not. Anger can work for you to push you and to motivate you to do something of justice, of righteousness. But, but there's a difference between be angry that and, sin, and not. sin not. Yeah, there's a difference between that, you're passionate about some things, and being a person who's just given to anger and frustration and even rage. We've all been around people who, they just seem like they're a little volcano all the time. They're always simmering. It doesn't matter what's going on. Great stuff could be going on, but it's always like getting ready to erupt. Oh dear, I don't want to be around that person. I might set them off. I don't even know what I, if I move the salt shaker wrong, they're just constantly like ready to erupt. Now that's out of control. Just continue on that verse, Pam. Ephesians 4, it's actually Ephesians 4 verse 26. It says, be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down in your wrath. We've all heard that. But then the next verse, it's interesting, neither give place to the devil. When our passions lead us into sin, we end up giving a place to the devil. Yeah. You know, when we boil over, when our passions lead us instead of us leading them and mastering them, then we end up giving a place to the enemy. I don't want to do that. And that's what the word says here. A hot-tempered man ends up stirring up strife. Well, that's strife for himself, not just others but himself, right? That's true. We want to be slow to anger. Verse 19, the way of the sluggard is overgrown with thorns. It pricks, it lacerates, and it entangles that person. But the way of the righteous is plain and raised up like Like a a highway. highway. There's another translation says that the way of the righteous is plain and raised up like a causeway. Isn't that so cool? You always say you like the Audubon. Yeah, I just think it's so interesting that the Word of God makes it clear that when you're a sluggard, your way gets overgrown with thorns and it pricks and it lacerates and it entangles. So like you said, if you reverse engineer this from the outcome back and say, right now my path seems to be full of things that prick and lacerate and entangle me, well, then you need to go, okay, well, where am I being sluggish in my life? Like, where am I not applying diligence, the true godly diligence that the Lord has assigned me to? And being a sluggard can be a lot of things. We think, I get up, I work from day into night, I don't even sleep. Well, what are you doing though? Are you being a sluggard and not reading the word, not singing a song to Jesus, not being thankful during the day, not taking time to have the Holy Spirit unfold and listen to him? Those are things you can be a sluggard with too. I am the worst enemy of focus for anyone's life is busyness. You can be really busy 
and basically trying to justify yourself saying, well, I'm so busy, I, I can't be a sluggard. But God's called us to a life of focus. And when you're not focused and you're just busy, that's kind of the cocaine of this culture we live in now. Everybody's busy. I don't know anybody that doesn't burn up their 24 hours in a day. Everybody's busy, but very few people have a godly focus. In Matthew 7, 14, Jesus said, Narrow and compressed is the way that leads to life. He's saying it's extremely focused. I've referenced this illustration many times because it really does speak forcefully. It's true that a 100-watt light bulb can barely light up a room in the middle of the night, but a 100-watt laser can cut through six inches of steel. That's focus. And that is what God's called us to, the back half of verse 19. But the way of the righteous, I can guarantee you this, it's focused. And what is it? The way of the righteous is plain, raised up like a highway. It has a focus to it. That means it eliminates the options. It eliminates the distractions. There's a lot of things that are good, but there's one thing that's needful, Mm, right? It's so good. Verse 20. A wise son, a wise daughter makes a glad father. But a self-confident and foolish man despises his mother and puts her to shame. The fifth commandment in the Old Testament, and it's interesting, it's the first commandment that has to do with our horizontal relationships. The first four commandments all have to do with our vertical relationship with God the Father. But the next six commandments, starting with five, is that we would honor our father and mother, that our days may be long on the earth, and that it may be well with us. How do we do that when, you know, there's people out there that their earthly mother or father might be dishonorable people, and not even walking in the way of the Lord, but walking in the way of evil? How do you honor your mom or dad? Also, isn't this talking about even spiritual mothers and fathers? Yeah, I believe that with all my heart. Pam, you ask a really good question because there's a lot of people, they've been raised in conditions where maybe their dad abused them or their mom abused them. Or the other day on TV, I saw three young people, their biological mother tried to abort them. And the only reason they were here was because the abortion somehow failed. The one young man had his right arm completely missing Mm. because of a failed abortion attempt where they actually took his arm, but he stayed alive and his mother. How do those kids, how do they honor their father and mother? You know, it says right here, a foolish man despises his mother. Even in that case, it was so interesting. Those three children, all of them practiced forgiveness toward their biological mother. And they said that they had completely forgiven them. And coincidentally, all three of them were born again Christians. And they got adopted. And they they had got adopted into Christian families. And they all said it was vital and important to forgive their mothers, their biological mothers mothers. So in doing that, see, they're not despising their mother. Right. That's honor. There's got to be a seed you can give, and you got to pick the right seed for the right ground. And when somebody has positioned themselves as an enemy of yours, and they may even be a parent, a father or a mother, they may hate you, but what's the right seed in response to them? At the very least, it's the beautiful, wonderful, loving seed of forgiveness. Yeah, it's so true. It goes back You can back at and the forth. very least forgive your parents. And not curse them. I'm thinking of, on the other side, a good father and a good mom that are trying to raise their children in the ways of the Lord. And what a joy it is. I've seen some friends of ours, their little girl, she's so precious. And she was in there being kind to somebody and hugging this older person saying, I appreciate you and you're so this and bringing this older person a cup of tea and she's only six years old and being so kind and saying, you know, do you want me to pray for you and stuff like that? And a friend of mine, we were both crying to seeing her do that. It was just so precious. It brought such joy to her and her husband to see little precious do that. And it makes your parents 
glad when a person walks in the love and the wisdom of God, but it's so, I think it's got to be one of the most painful things because we know people that are believing for their sons and daughters to come back to Jesus that are just agnostics, turning their back on God and being scornful. It's so painful. In the name of Jesus right now, we agree with any of our friends who are listening that have loved ones, sons and daughters or nephews and nieces that have gone off the path, yes, the plain path of the righteous and are experiencing that prodigal lifestyle right now. In the name of Jesus, right now we come into agreement with you and we ask for the Holy Spirit to woo them, to draw them, to win their hearts. Holy Spirit, you're such an expert at winning and bringing the lost back to the truth, back to Christ. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, come. Amen. Come back. Verse 21, folly is pleasure to him who is without heart and sense, but a man of understanding walks uprightly, making straight his course. Isn't it interesting, Pam, that a man or a woman of understanding, they walk uprightly, and when you walk uprightly, you end up making your own course straight. That's so good. But the beginning of it says, folly is pleasure to him who is without heart and understanding, without heart and sense. To be without heart and sense, you end up delighting in folly folly and foolishness and wasteful and riotous living. I've heard some people say, and you know, it's easy to do. I probably said it too in the past, but some people keep experiencing trouble and consequences where they keep hitting the same wall over and over again and basically saying, well, we just believe that this is God's lot for us. This is God's will. This is just who God's made us to be, to always hit the wall and always life be just really hard. In some ways, I can see where they're not walking in the way of understanding and wisdom. Counsel that has been given to them, they say they're going to walk into it, but they don't. When I have done that, when somebody's given me understanding and counsel, and I don't walk in it, it continues to be hard for me. But when I choose to get an answer to something and just even a little thing, walk in that, my life always goes forward. It's not that everything's perfect all the way, but my way is straight because it's his way and it's it's not thorny or crooked or corrupt. It doesn't feel so crooked and thorny and yucky and stepping on great big rocks all the time. It's straighter. My course is straighter. I think the more wisdom and understanding we can get from the Lord on a constant basis, the straighter our course will be. Isn't that good? I love Ephesians 5 that kind of goes along with this. Starting at verse 14, it says that Christ will shine upon us and give us light. God hasn't left us in this world Mm, without light. And it says in verse 14 of Ephesians 5, that Christ will shine upon us and give us light. And so then it says, look carefully then how you walk. Live purposefully and worthily and accurately and not as unwise and witless, but as wise, sensible, intelligent people and making the most of all the time. We're called and instructed by God to make the most of the time, even to buy up opportunities. Yeah, that's so good. Isn't that good? Yeah. Now, verse 22, where there is no counsel, this goes along with it, where there is no counsel, purposes are frustrated. But with many godly counselors, they are accomplished. And again, that doesn't mean running to everybody, your next door neighbor, the person that's working on your lawn, pouring out your heart. It means good counselors, trusted counselors. People who qualify. People who qualify. So where there is no good counsel, purposes are frustrated. So if your purposes right now are being frustrated, what's that mean? That means you need to pursue better counsel. 
wiser counsel. Yes, that's it. Right now, if your circumstances are being frustrated or if you're pursuing something in your business and you just keep coming up against a brick wall, don't get discouraged. Don't give up. Yeah. No, don't feel like you're a failure. Don't buy into the enemy's accusations. Just realize and ask the Lord for counsel. Say, God, I need more counsel, better counsel, wise counsel. Yeah. And trust me, God will give it to you. He'll answer your prayer. But until you pursue it, until you desire it enough to pursue it, God doesn't have even access to answer a prayer that's non-existent, right? That's so good. You got to pray the prayer. So good. Verse 23, a man or a woman has joy in making an apt answer and a word spoken at the right moment. Oh, oh how good, good it, it is. is. Like what you said, the right words in the right tone in the right place, in the right time. 24, the path of the wise leads upward to life, that he may avoid the gloom in the depths of Shoal, Hades, the place of the dead, or destruction. Well, once again, we're being told that there's a pathway. There's the path that goes up. There's the path that, that, we, that we read in verse 19, that's the way of the righteous. It's plain. It's raised up like a causeway, like a highway, an autobahn. But then there's the path that's grown over with thorns. It pricks, it lacerates. You know, we're reading here that the path of the wise, it goes upwards to life, but the other path, it goes down. None of us want that. And the path of life also avoids the path of gloom and the depths of Sheol. Yeah. Verse 25, the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but he makes secure the boundaries of the consecrated widow. And I come back to Jesus' analogy where he says, those that listen to my words, the words of the wise, he said, those people that listen to my words and do them, he said, I'll tell you what he's like. He's like a person who builds their house on the rock. And when the storms come, storms come. They sure do. Adversity comes. The winds and the rains and the floods come. But when your life is built on the rock, it remains. It stands forever. But when your life is built on shifting sand, and you know, there's very little effort or work into building on sand because it's just, it seems to work with you. It's the easy way. So it's tempting. It's not a strong foundation. When you build on sand, you're not digging down to the rock, so you don't have to pay that excavation cost. You don't have that labor, that sweat equity into digging down to the rock. But man, when you dig down to the truth, there's work into it. Yeah. And there's effort put into it. But whatever foundations you build on the rock, no storm, no wind can blow it over. Right. 26. The thoughts of the wicked are shamefully vile and exceedingly offensive to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasing words to him. You know, I've said this before, but I've had some people say, perhaps I've said it a long time ago too, but I've heard people say, well, I can speak whatever I want to. Don't get into bondage with my words. If I want to say this, God knows my heart. You show me where that's in the scriptures. What we've been reading is our words are very important. We need to speak words of life. We need to speak God's will and his way. I think it's important to realize too, when it says the words of the pure are pleasing words to God. The reason they are is because your words are an extension of your heart. Yeah, and that's this is why says, the thoughts yeah. of the wicked are so shamefully vile, because their thoughts always turn into words, words. and actions. Mm -hmm, that's good. I come back to Jesus where he said that a good man or a good woman out of the good treasure of her heart brings forth good things. Right. An evil person out of the evil place of their heart brings forth evil things. And this is why God detests wicked thoughts, because wicked thoughts turn into wicked words and wicked actions. Right. The seed always grows into some kind of plant for good or for bad. Verse 27, he who is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes, that person will live. 28, the mind of the uncompromisingly righteous studies how to answer, 
but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. I see such a difference. Instead of just talking really quick, you ponder, okay, I'm going to submit myself to your righteousness right now, your rightness, your way of thinking, Lord. How should I answer? You know, Jesus never answered quickly. And sometimes he answered with a question. His times of prayer with his father up on the mountaintop, God was downloading answers into his heart for the day to come, for the week to come. I really believe that this is why when Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, he prayed out loud for the audience around him. And he said, Father, I thank you that you've already heard my prayer. Yeah. Jesus didn't show up at death's door and start praying. He had already been with God and he'd already done his homework. Yes, he came prepared. Exactly. That's so good. Verse 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the consistently righteous, the upright in right standing with God. This is what we're talking about again, God hearing prayers. He hears the prayer of the consistently righteous. Can you tell me that scripture that when we were getting married, you had always read that scripture where it says, if a man who's married doesn't wash his wife with, you know, the rightness of God, the word of God, the character of God, that his prayers are hindered. And I think some people, they go to every prayer meeting, but at home, they're not walking in the ways of the Lord and their prayers are actually being hindered. It says right here, the Lord is far from the ones that are wicked, but he hears the prayer of the consistently righteous. In other words, they don't have to be perfect, but they're walking daily, going forward step by step in the ways of God. Where's that scripture found? It's in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, I believe. Peter's writing to married couples, and he gives the wife some instruction on how to be toward her husband. But then he says to the husband in verse 7, he says, in the same way, you married men, you should live with a consideration of your wives with you know a sensitivity toward your wives and honor the woman it says as the weaker but realizing that you're a joint heir of God's grace of life in order it says that your prayers never be hindered or cut off and i remember for me that was in my approach to being married and god promised me grace to be married i thought god as a single man i cannot live without being connected vitally to you. Right. I need to have you hear my prayers. I can't live without my communion with you. And so when I would read this in 1 Peter 3, verse 7, and that said that if I don't treat my wife properly and as honorably before God, that it would hinder my prayer life. I was like, oh my goodness, like I gotta I gotta make sure that I keep things right between me and Pammy. Right. <laughs> you know, I, and we really have to guard ourselves and prove ourselves as far as measure ourselves, like you always say, when we're always doing something publicly, but yet we can't even communicate kindness within our own family and our own intimate relationships. But out there, we're praised for being the most prophetic one or the most this one or the loudest this one or the most talented this one. or the. We have to really measure ourselves because is God hearing your prayers? I mean, of course, He loves us and hears us. His mercy endures forever. But this is something that we need to take a deep breath and really measure ourselves. Wait a second. I need to go back and apologize to my spouse or to my kids, to my intimate friends. I wasn't right there. I didn't have a right attitude. I need to humble myself and say, honey, you're important. How can I nourish you? How can we nourish each other with your kids? You know, sometimes in religious circles, we mean to do the right things, but our own private, intimate, covenant relationships are suffering, and we're wondering why. I like the book of Matthew, chapter 6 particularly, where Jesus has given us instructions because he really tells us how to pray. He tells us how to give 
how to give to the poor, how to handle our charity. And then when he gets into verse 6, he says, but when you pray, go into your most private room, close the door, pray to your father. And here's a word that kind of hits home with me. He said, pray in secret because your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. But then he says, verse 7, Pam, he says, but when you pray, don't pray like the world does and just heap up all kinds of phrases For they think, he says, they will be heard for their much speaking, or other translations say, for much repetition. He says, don't be like them, for your father knows what you have need of before you even ask. Then he goes into the famous part where he says, pray, therefore, like this, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And he goes on. I think that's so beautiful when he teaches us to pray. And when he said pray in secret, now, God's not against public prayer by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not a substitute for the communion that Jesus had on those mountaintop experiences that were private, intimate, even secret. Jesus did not invite the others to attend these times. I think it's wonderful in a faith context to pray for the sick, and that very well could be and should be your living room, your car, a hospital, or on the street. After all, Jesus gave us power to heal the sick, representing him as the ecclesia, that church, not a building church or a human organization, but rather his body of envoys anointed with his power. James 5 verse 14 says to call for the elders of the church, the ecclesia, to pray for the sick. That's the elders he's talking about, not property managers of a building called a church or executive of an organization, the real ecclesia. That prayer is an extension of your faith, developed out of your personal and continual fellowship with God, not a public substitute for a private reality. Otherwise, it's just a religious Pharisee show, right? It's it's less than worthless. It says to call for the elders of the church to pray for you. Prayer meetings for our nation, our family, our communities, where we agree on God's word for the future. Of course. We've been talking about in this chapter, foundations. Yes. If your prayer is foundationally based out of a public outward expression, that's more about the optics instead of having an intimate relational prayer life that's based out of your secret life. We talk about integrity. It's one thing to have an action outwardly that reflects integrity that's inward. And this is why the Bible says that God loves the prayer of the righteous, but even the sacrifice of the wicked, God loathes it. It's ugly and it's gross to him. Why? Because there's a breach of integrity. Mm, They're doing something externally that doesn't line up with what's internal. And God is all about the integrity of a thing. Jesus had a secret prayer life. He went up into the mountain to pray. But you know what's very interesting? Jesus never has a public prayer or a group prayer meeting with anybody. What about the Garden of Gethsemane just before he went to the cross? Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he told the guys, watch with me, pray with me. And he went and separated himself from them and went over and prayed privately. I think it's important to realize that what you're saying is when we do the private prayer, even with our family, our spouses, our intimate friends, when we do go into large situations, there's already this sense of power and strength that we're going to be praying the will of God. That's the key. I had someone talk to me recently, a young person, and said, I know my dad loves the Lord so much. He volunteers at church all the time, and he's just such a great guy, and he's always lived such a good life before me, but I've never seen him at home pray with mom, read the word with mom, or just read the word himself. I know he does, probably privately maybe, but she says he never wants to really talk to us about the things of the Lord, and yet I know he's a wonderful Christian who loves the Lord, 
You know, there's a lot of people who say that they can go publicly, be the first one to stand up and pray for five minutes. You know, who's going to pray? I'll pray. Who's going to prophesy? I'll prophesy. But yet, when was the last time they got up a half hour earlier just to hear what God is saying from His Word, to meditate on it, train their tongue to speak His words? So the integrity, I believe, of of public prayer is not based so much on our public words, but really it's our secret patterns and our private choices. Let's pray together today. Let's read a proverb together. Let's read a chapter of the Word of God together, a devotional together. Let's talk about it for five, ten minutes. You know, they're unwilling to submit to that, but yet they're willing to publicly do things. And I think that's where things get out of order. Absolutely. Here we go, verse 30. The light in the eyes of him whose heart is joyful rejoices the hearts of others, and good news nourishes the bones. You know, I like this. I want to read this again. The light in the eyes of him whose heart is joyful rejoices the hearts of others, and good news nourishes the bones. That's a memorizing worth verse, isn't it? It sure is. We want to reach the world for Jesus. We want to get our neighbors and the people in our workplace and our school born again. Listen, if we don't allow the joy of the Lord to be poured on us and we stir it up and we cannot be that to the world. It says when our heart is joyful, then there's a light in our eyes and it rejoices the hearts of even the people at the grocery store. Can you imagine the power of the light in your eyes? Wow. That's so powerful that without saying anything, the very life and light in your eyes ends up rejoicing the heart of others. Yeah. It becomes like something on your countenance. Oh, I got to be honest with you. If you're listening to this together, let's just agree before God that we have that kind of light in our eyes that rejoices the heart of others. I want that. I want to be that conduit of light. Yes. Father's light flowing through me that I don't even need to say a word, but God's light comes through my eyes. And it says, and look, and good news nourishes the bones. Well, we know that the life is in the marrow of the bone, like the marrow of the bone creates the blood for your body and the life is in the blood. So ultimately the life ends up being generated from your bones. So it's talking about the foundation of your nutrition, the foundation of your immune system. And it says good news. So my friend, if you get somebody that's working on a healing, somebody that needs deliverance from a disease, or sickness, good news is the answer. They need just a bunch of good news. And that's why I've said many times, get this podcast into your sick friends and family's hands so that they can just meditate on the Word of God night and day. Get good news in their heart because when you hear the Word of God, Romans says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And then good news of God's Word builds up in your heart and it actually affects the Mm. health of your bones. It does. (laughs) Yeah! Verse 31, the ear that listens to the reproof that leads to or gives life will remain among the wise. So, you know, Pam, that tells me if I want to live and remain among wise people, I have to be an excellent listener. listener. You know how some people listen and you can tell just their their mouth is already (laughs) quivering? Their mouth is already quivering. They're just like, okay, is it my turn yet? Uh, Oh, yeah. And I was thinking. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. That's so funny. So I have to be a good listener. I ask God for that help. If I go to a conference or if I'm sitting with a wise mentor, a man of God, a woman of God who has wisdom in their heart, I even ask the Lord, God, give me the right questions to ask them so that I can hear what you want me to hear, what you want to say to me through them. 
Give me ears to hear. Yes, yes. I ask God for that. Yes, amen. Give me ears to hear. Amen. I think giving attention, paying attention, looking into the eyes of God. Sometimes we go to the piano, we love to just lift our hands. It's almost like we're looking right into the eyes of God. And that's part of paying attention. But sometimes I think we're willing to sing to Him, but not willing to pay attention when He wants to sing back over us His will and way, when He wants to talk to us. It's both ways. It says the ear that listens to the reproof that leads to life will remain among the wise. I ask God for grace to be able to manage the reproof that God gives me because if you despise reproof, Mm. reproof moves away from you. (laughs) Wow, that's really good stuff. And when reproof moves away from you, you're doomed. You have no future. If you cannot manage and handle the reproof, if you despise reproof, Mm -hmm. then you're basically putting an eviction notice on wisdom in your life. Wow, that's a scary thing. 32. He who refuses and ignores instruction and correction despises himself, but he who heeds reproof gets understanding. You end up really hating yourself when you despise and refuse instruction. Boy, that's a real way of thinking, isn't it? When we refuse and ignore godly instruction and correction, we hate (laughs) ourselves. But when we choose to get understanding and wisdom from good counselors, the Holy Spirit and other people used by God, we like (laughs) ourselves. You know, look, I'm just going to speak from my own experience. There were times in my early 20s when emotionally and physically I felt so low that I didn't even realize that I was contemplating suicide. I would think about it a lot. And at that time in my life, you guys, I really had a hard time with instruction and correction. I was coming to the book of God. I was coming to the ancient wisdom of God, but I was really struggling with submitting to instruction and submitting to correction. In doing that, I didn't realize it. I was heaping up this bad attitude toward me. I was hating me. And the more I hated me, the more I wanted to get rid of me. Just speaking from my own experience, the more you hate and refuse and ignore instruction and correction, it can push you to the brink of becoming even suicidal. Verse 33, the reverent and worshipful fear of the Lord brings instruction in wisdom. The reverent and worshipful fear of the Lord, which is meaning the hand you see and recognize the very hand of God, his providing hand, his healing hand, his delivering hand, saving hand, protecting hand. The reverent and worshipful fear of the Lord brings instruction in wisdom and humility comes Mm. before honor. Do you want honor? Then humble yourself. Yeah, that's the way. We were talking about 1 Peter 5, verses 5, 6, and it says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. You want to talk about honor. Right. God Almighty exalting you. But what's it say? The first step is humble yourself. Humble yourself. Submit to the truth. Doesn't it say, you know, when we honor God by humbling ourselves, doesn't it say that he turns and honors us, you know? 1 Samuel 2, verse 30, God says, those that honor me, I will honor. Wow, that's powerful. Well, how do we honor God? By submitting to him, by reverentially being in awe of him and submitting to him, submitting to his word and hearkening to his word and listening to the truth. Pam, this has been such a powerful chapter. I'm asking you if you would just lead us and pray the word of God over us. I just believe that as we agree together, you know, friends, as you're listening to Pam leading us in prayer, as we agree together, I believe that God's word becomes legislated in our lives and it activates not only the angelic forces, but it activates the very hand of God in your life. So let's believe together. Here we go. Father, I thank you that right now we are all kneeling before you in our heart. Yes. Our heart 
bows before you. Mm. I thank you, Lord, when we bow before you, you crown us with your joy, your peace, your answers, your understanding. Right now, we choose and we command our mind, will, and emotions and our body to submit and pay attention to the goodness of God, the way of God, the instruction of God, the reproof of God, the encouragement of God. We will take time today to pay attention, to listen, to see what you're trying, to hear what you're trying to say to us. Lord, sometimes we pray a lot, but we're not willing to take the time to listen to your answers. So right now we humble ourselves, we submit to receiving your answers, to receiving your way of thinking and doing things, of receiving your will. And we bow before the cross of Jesus Christ. And we say, Lord, we lay down anything that's not of you and we pick up your rightness, your way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Father, thank you that in that way, our way will be plain and raised up like a highway because of it, Lord. I thank you we choose to worship you today, to walk in worship and awe of you, always looking to your hand. We thank you for your great rich treasure that's coming to us. Lord, we submit our tongue to you today to be a a healing power, a tree of life for people. Our tongue, we command to speak God's words of healing life and to be a tree of life to others. Lord, we lay down any offense. Our lips, we choose to speak life to others and we thank you for it, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that our house is secure today because we lean on you. Our boundaries are are secure and consecrated. Praise God. And thank you, Lord, we give our mind to understanding. We crave it, and we know that our mouths will speak joy. And right now, I also speak to you that are anxious, and I say, in the name of Jesus, I speak peace to your mind, Jesus' peace and glad right now. Lord, stir up the gladness of their heart so the anxious thoughts and foreboding flee away in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, Pam, just as you were praying, I just really felt in my heart that that song that we have I Bowed Down would be an awesome compliment to this chapter. Yes. So friends, if you get a chance, go to iTunes, go to our website and get that song I Bowed Down. It's encouraging. It's exhilarating. It's good to run to, but it really is a great great worship song all about bowing down and submitting to God's wisdom, truth, his nature, his character. And it's great just to compliment God's word with worship songs and praise songs. So get I Bow Down, go to stephenandpam.com, check us out on iTunes, get that download, share it with a friend, listen to these devotions, take it to a sick friend or family member and get them feasting and indulging on the word of God like some dark chocolate. Yes, amen. And thank you for signing up for The Living Room, subscribing to that because that helps us reach the world. Thank you, partners. We love you. Thank you for being a friend. And it's so good to share with sons and daughters in the body of Christ. We really do love you. And remember, you're born Born to win. win. Thanks for listening to Stephen and Pam Marshall. To receive more information or more teaching, go to www.stephenandpam.com. Stephen and Pam Ministries is a 501c3 charitable organization and your gift helps us to take this message to 1,000 communities worldwide.